Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash complete developer podcast. Nice threads, brah. Where'd you get them? The Create Thread API. When you mostly deal with single threads of execution early on in your software development career, eventually you will find yourself in a situation where you need to do multiple things at a time. Whether it's because you have a long-running background process that needs to update a GUI working with a service that handles requests from multiple clients concurrently, or because you simply need to do a lot of things at the same time, you'll eventually find that you have to learn how to work with multiple threads. In this episode, we're going to talk about some of the things that threading offers you and some of the pitfalls. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? I have been fighting another round of burnout. There's just been too much stuff going on for a while. And uh, so this last week I did a lot of work around the house, tore up the, you know, the front flower beds and, you know, did a whole bunch of stuff that wasn't on the computer. Um, and I feel a little bit better. Uh, we'll, we'll see how that, how that goes. Um, I've also replaced, or I'm in the process of replacing the server rack with a network attached storage unit. that's just going to mm-hmm. sit there a lot smaller, doesn't take up what a third of the room. Um, so that's going to be pretty nice. Um, other than that, man, I've just been working. How about you? Well, I have been fighting AutoMapper today. I sent you some Hangouts messages about it. I just can't get it to ignore a field if it's null on the source, but not null in the destination. It keeps nulling out the destination. Eventually, I had to code it so that it populates the source data from the destination before mapping it. Yeah, it's it seems it's like bad. there ought to be a way to get around that. Of course, I I don't like having. Uh, well, I don't know. Is the payload, like, is there ever a time that what's coming in from the source is not null? Right see, now, no, but that may change in the future. Yeah. See, my thought on that is it seems like there's, you're using a single data type structure Yeah. where there really should be two. There's one for the, the payload that goes to the database, and then there's the message that's the update. I know, mm-hmm. you know, because like you run into this kind of stuff when you do CRUD a yeah. lot of times. Yeah, so so I had to do that just to get it to work, um, and I put a note in there. So if anybody comes back and has to update it, they'll know that this was not the choice that I made. It was the choice that I was forced to use. Yeah. Now, in better news, this afternoon, I went to a meeting of the Nashville Technology Council for local group leaders. It had free pizza. I was excited. I didn't know it was going to have free pizza until I got there, other than the fact that they scheduled it at lunchtime. So I figured there'd be food. It was good to get together and a lot of fun to see so many people that I know and to meet new ones that are working in tech and helping people by running groups. Um, It was also nice to be included in with groups and people that have been doing this for 10 to 15 years, whereas we've only been around for a couple of years. Um, as a a meetup group. So that's really awesome. Uh, One of the ideas they had was to have a centralized calendar with all the events and conferences going on in Nashville so that we could work together on scheduling. I thought that was a great idea. Um, So much so that uh, I pulled it into IOTs for this week. So I have a really neat concept coming out of Japan that Will might want for his home. 
This week for IOTs, I have a concept called the e-ink calendar. This comes from the Android Experimental Objects show in Japan. It's an electronic ink calendar that connects your Google Calendar to a view that you can put in your home. It looks like a regular wall calendar that you hang up, but it's made of an e-paper screen. And this will allow it to be on all day with very little power usage. The idea involves using a custom Android app to get real-time data from your Google Calendar to update the screen with what you have planned. Unfortunately, there aren't any set plans for production as it was just sort of an early concept of what could be done. I really am hoping this comes out and to retailers soon, but hey, Will, you want to make our own version that includes iOS and beat them to market? (laughs) Yeah, because I totally have time for that right now. Let me put it on the calendar. Oh, wait. Now we're recursing. Who's talking to us this week? We got a personal comment from Cody. I assume you collected this at work since you work in the same building. I really wish I knew y'all were doing a podcast on CSS. I'm reading the breakdown and there's a lot of things I have different opinions on. Um, And I will say Cody definitely does have opinions. Lots of them. Um, And they're usually pretty smart ones too. So um, it'd be really good to at some point bring him on the show and maybe talk about how to start setting up your CSS on a new project. Um, That episode was more around like your project probably sucks if this is going on in your code base. Honestly, I'd love to see you and Cody hash it out over the the differences. Uh, I think listeners might enjoy that too. We could call it CSS showdown. Cody versus Will. Well, he'd probably win on that one. (laughs) Because he actually likes CSS. Uh... Well, yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, Cody, uh, thanks for that comment. That's, that's really awesome. Um, it, I appreciate that you are looking at the kind of stuff that we're putting out. Uh, and uh, I've got a water bottle for you. I'll bring it uh, to work when they come in. And guys, if you'd like your very own Complete Developer water bottle, leave us a review in iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all our episodes to Facebook, Twitter, Google+. We're also on Path, Instagram, and Tumblr. You can check us out each week where we do a live show and talk about what's going on in the tech world and answer listener questions. Or join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Threading is crucial to understand if you want your application to be responsive to multiple users, to update a user interface while a long-running process proceeds in the background, or just to allow you to process multiple things at the same time. In addition, the concept is very useful for situations where you're awaiting blocking I.O. or you want to take advantage of multiple CPU cores to get things done faster. In this episode, we're going to go through some of the general concepts you need to know to understand how threads work at an operating system level and what they're intended to accomplish. We'll discuss most of this with the context of the Windows operating system, but understand that this is a programmatic issue that most operating systems have to deal with. Unix variants will have a lot of the same concepts, but may handle them differently. This will be mostly definitions so that you can understand how the pieces fit together. In a future episode, we'll discuss more of how to safely write multi-threaded applications. Yeah, and before we get too much further, the reason I didn't get into Unix threading is because I'm probably about second-order ignorant on that. Um, I don't know what I don't know. I've done some threading on there, but that's just not the bulk of my experience. The bulk of it has been on Windows, Mm -hmm. so um, that's where I'm coming from on this stuff. And so we'll start with the first one, which is concurrency. 
Concurrency is the execution of several computations during overlapping time periods um, instead of being done sequentially. Note that this definition doesn't say anything about the architecture of the system. It doesn't matter if it is across threads, multiple CPU cores, multiple processes, or even multiple computers. It's just a, an overbroad definition of here's, here's what we're calling this type of execution. So basically, concurrency is two or more things happening concurrently or at the same time. Right, because you and I can work on something concurrently, whereas only one of us is going to be multitasking individually, <laughs> right, which is the next one. Uh, multitasking is the concurrent execution of multiple tasks, also known as processes. New tasks can interrupt running tasks before they finish instead of waiting. Right. And this is what's referred to as preemptive multitasking, which is what you're going to see on Windows and fair-sized chunk of other operating systems. Um, there were older systems that uh, you actually you know would work along and then you would say, okay, now I'm yielding to some other thread. Mm -hmm. And so your stuff would only get interrupted at certain points, which sounds great from, hey, I'm writing code. But it's real bad from an operating system perspective because somebody could just go, yeah, I'm never yielding. So to go with your, you're using us, we could be concurrently working on episodes. So both of us are working on an episode. You are working on the, the body, the content and your tricks of the trade to make them match up. I'm working on the intro material and the, um, and the IOTs to make them kind of go together. And we're both multitasking, doing a couple of things, working in different areas. So we're each multitasking and working concurrently. Right. Now, you know, of course, the, the preemptive thing would be like, I'm talking and you interrupt or vice versa. Yeah. Um, so that's a reasonable thing. Now, these tasks will share common resources. This is stuff like CPUs, memory, typically not as much on other IO devices, because um, usually you want to have one thread that's got that thing under control instead of a whole bunch of stuff messing with it. Note that the definition of multitasking allows two or more tasks to advance during the same time period. This does not necessarily imply parallel execution. So it might be, you know, I edit some and then I go, okay, hey, my hands are getting tired. You edit. So it's like pair programming might be a, yeah, a, an example, be a good of example of that because with a shared resource, a shared keyboard, mm -hmm. for instance. Or if you're, um, you're doing something like the going to, to Microsoft, the Visual Studio share. Yeah. I don't know. Have you used that yet? I have not. I, I have. We've used it at work and I've used it on side projects too. Like as soon as that was available, I would jumped on it because it's a great idea. Um, but it basically one person has the, like the person that's sharing, it's their instance of it. And then you basically have access in the Visual Studio or Visual Studio code to work on my instance. So it's, it's as if, you, if one person, if you had to be locked, then you would have one person with it, but multiple people could be working on it at the same time and pair programming that way. It's, it's nice. We, um, we do this with our view models now when we're creating our, all right, how's the data going to be passed between the UI and the API? I'll get on with our UI developer and we'll just have one instance and we'll just, we'll both be working in there. And so nice. it's nice. And yeah, that's, that's sort of what it is because you, you don't want two people, you're sharing the same code base. So you don't want two people going at the same time. Yeah. It's, it's the time cop principle. Same matter can occupy the same space at the same time. <laughs> yeah. How about a 90s awesome, throwback right there? Awesome geek reference there. I love it. <laughs> I love it. 
So uh, we talked about the preemptive multitasking, uh, which is the type used on Windows. Uh, mm -hmm. That means that if your thread is executing and your stuff is going, it could be interrupted at some moment and another thread could execute for a minute and then yeah. it jumps back to you. Um, there's all kinds of stuff that we're going to get into later. That also means that if you're sharing resources between multiple threads of your stuff, you can't necessarily guarantee execution order as well as you might think. Mm -hmm. Basically, it divides the available processor time amongst a group of processes that need it. Right. So next, the interruption of running work means that the state of existing process is saved and the state of another process is loaded. This is referred to as context switching. Right. Now, the thing to note here is just like with human multitasking, context switches are not free. Right. That's CPU load that still happens when you switch. So if you switch too much, that ends up being all you do. Is switching back and forth and you never get anything done. Right. And yeah. we've all had jobs like that. Um, <laughs> we just have. <laughs> I want to say we've all had classes like that, but I don't know that everyone's had classes like that. Yeah. <laughs> in school. Now, the context switches can happen at any time during the execution of the code with some caveats on that. Uh, consequently, if you're doing multi-threaded development, you do have to be really careful about shared state between threads because you just don't know when something's going to hit. And so you'll get weird timing errors. The metaphor for the shared state that we're going to use in this episode will be that of a shared bank account. And a single person having access to the account can easily balance it and manage resources. But the complexity goes way up the more people have access. Yeah. So if Will and I shared a bank account, that would be interesting and horrifically horrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um we realistically what you do is you just give the bartender access to it. Just, <laughs> like yeah. save us save us the signature work here. Right. <laughs> um yeah. So while context switching makes multiple work threads possible, it also means that weird problems can crop up due to one thread having a stale information or old state. Right. So uh, we'll get into the definition of what a process is first, because this kind of branches down from here. A process provides the resources needed to execute a program. This is stuff like your virtual address space, you know, your memory that you your program owns okay. versus somebody else's program. That way you can't write to somebody else's memory because that would be real bad. You could destabilize somebody else's app accidentally and they get blamed for it being a pile of crap. <laughs> so I've been watching a lot of older sci-fi and one of the one of the tropes that you don't see as much nowadays, but you did back in, I guess, the late 80s, 90s sci-fi was uh, telepaths overriding people's memories. Yeah. And this is this is what it makes me think of is, you know, like the damage that that does to the person's personality. And, you know, like it completely changes who they are, which is why we don't allow that with our processes. They have their own virtual memory space. You know, this is stuff like environment variables, that kind of stuff. You spin up a process usually with a single thread. Um, I believe in Delphi and a lot of the other stuff, It's there's actually a thread for managing uh, Windows, like the uh, the event loop. And then there's one that's actually for controlling that. And that's just kind of built in. I'm not 100% sure on that one, but uh, just let's go with that. Um, <laughs> that now, works. The thread that launches can create and control other threads of its own. Um, that is one nice thing about threading is you can spin off another thread when you need one. All threads in the process share the same virtual address space. So it's like a pen full of sheep. That's a nice way to put it, right? So a thread is the entity within a process that can be scheduled for execution. 
Like you create a new thread by specifying the memory address of the code that will be executed when that thread runs. Right. So if memory in a process is shared between multiple threads, then you need to make sure access to that memory is synchronized properly. This is where this whole synchronization context and all that stuff comes into play. Mm -hmm. You can create a thread in a suspended state so that it doesn't start executing until you tell it to do so. Right. So that's, that's nice because you can have it sitting there ready to go. And then you say, all right, go do that uh, instead of having to go, all right, I need this. Let me go create it. Right. Because that takes time. Right. Because of that, you've got a lot of stuff you have to set up with a new thread and you may want that done in advance so that you can respond quickly to an event that's, that is occurring. Uh, each thread gets its own stack space. Um, you probably haven't dealt with this unless you've done like assembler or low level programming. But when you allocate a program, you basically say, here's how much stack space I will allow. And you can, you know, you control memory usage and all that. But the, the big thing with the stack is if you get more than a certain depth in there, it'll, you run out of stack space, you mm -hmm. get a stack overflow. Which is a great website. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> every, every developer loves and should use Stack Overflow. Yeah. In Windows, this space is deallocated when the thread exits, but not when it is terminated by another process. The same thing with you know, memory and stuff that's available. There's some reasons for that. I'm not sure what they are, but it's there. Now, each thread will be identified by a handle, and we probably should talk about what a handle is as well, because I don't know that we have brought that up before. A handle is a pointer to a pointer. The idea being that you have a pointer that points to where the thing actually points to so that that can be switched out without messing with yours. Mm -hmm. And you interact with stuff that way. It's uh, basically like a second degree abstraction. Right. So like you have a handle points to a pointer that points to the actual location and you can change out the actual location so you don't have to change your handler right. where it points. And I think some of the other thing there too is because some of that – the you're pointing to a memory location somewhere that's maybe shared space. So like if uh -huh. you're calling into an API, it's got control of its innards and you can't just reach directly in there and mess with stuff. You know, I was just thinking about it. Um, nobody could see the hand motions that I was doing. We yeah. really should get a video recording of this. Oh yeah. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> Where we just say, pause, let's grab a beer. Yeah. <laughs> Because that happened a minute ago. <laughs> well, we what we would have to do is we would have to have the beers ready to go already opened and just our keg. That's what we need in here is keg. I'm, I'm, I'm off topic. So, I'm so, so for the example we're using, uh, think of a thread as a person that has access to the bank account and is going about their day. That's a thread of execution. There may be one or more of those. So the thread scheduler handles the scheduling of threads for execution. That's why it's called the scheduler. Right. <laughs> this is done based on priority, which ranges from 0 to 31 on Windows, with higher numbers having a higher priority. And on Windows, the thread with a priority of 0 is the one that frees and zeroes up memory pages when they get freed. So, like, you call malloc and you get a chunk of memory to work with. When you're done with it and you deallocate it, that will be sitting there with whatever you had in it. The thread with priority zero cleans it up and zeroes it out so that if somebody else gets allocated that stuff, they can't read it. Okay. Yeah. I see what you're saying. The thread that controls the GUI is typically set to a higher priority than the background threads so that it can interrupt their execution. So the app remains responsive. 
right. makes perfect sense because you want what's displaying on the screen to move faster than what's behind it. If you think of like um, your your typical website. So you have your longer running processes, your your more calculations on your API that's sitting on a server that has a lot of RAM, a lot of other things that it can handle. And you want your faster stuff in the browser, in your JavaScript, because you want to be able to move through that quickly and send it off somewhere to to be processed and come back. Yeah, and I'll give you an example of a artifact of this. Um, and this this goes back to Windows 3.1 probably or before. This is a real long time ago. When you were installing apps, you know you would you would install it and it had the progress bar that would go through there, and it would it would grow and you know fill in as as the background process was actually doing the install. That had a higher thread. It had a higher thread priority. Because some of the installers were very inefficient, they were constantly issuing WM paint messages to that progress bar, and it was causing it to repaint. If you had a crappy graphics card, which all of them back then were, if you even had you know, separate graphics processing power, more of the install time was spent painting the screen than actually installing. However, the foreground Windows thread, if you clicked on the non-client area, which was like the title bar, like you're about to drag, it would suspend WM paint messages from being processed and it would yield to the background threads while it was doing that. So you could speed up your install by clicking and holding on the title bar because of the way the threading model worked. Okay. Yeah. I don't think that that's the case (laughs) now anywhere. I've not seen that in a long, long time. I would think they would have fixed that by now. Well, the, the installers also got a lot better because they realized, Hey, wait, this is, this is kind of stupid the way we're painting. I mean, you got to think about the way that you painted stuff in windows. You remember the gradients? Yes. I think in C++ they probably did this better, but in Visual Basic, drawing a line was, I think it was a little bit slower than actually drawing a rectangle. And so when you made a gradient, you just drew a ever-shrinking rectangle and changed the color. Yeah, it was like that in C++ too. I remember doing that in in high school. And I remember my friends, they were all into the graphic stuff because they wanted to get into video games. And I'm like, I'm just not into the video games. I, I like playing them, but I don't... I don't want to know the secrets behind the magic. I'd rather that be, you know. Somebody else's problem. Yeah. And and I I want to focus on the data and the manipulation and that fun stuff. Yeah. But I mean, that was, that was legitimately a thing. And a lot of times uh, the graphics code that you got a hold of was not very efficient because back then your reference material was a book that you got at at borders. Yeah. You you drove to the big city and you got a book. You know, you went there once a quarter, maybe. Well, maybe for you. Yeah. I grew up right outside the city, so I went to my grandmother's house every weekend in the city. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was a completely was a different. different experience. Yeah. yeah. It was it was a bit different. But, I mean, I say city. It was Nashville back in the 80s and 90s, so it was more like a big town. But we did have a couple of big bookstores. Yeah, so. I remember. So, with the thread scheduler, you can do special things like calling a wait function using thread.sleep. Or use a critical section if your main thread has to wait for the background thread. Please do not do thread.sleep in a web server context. Um, The the reason I I say this is because the web server only gets so many threads to work with. And when you put one to sleep, you're not actually releasing that thread. You're just hanging on to it and making it not do anything. If you do that enough, the whole web server stops doing things. I was going to say, you don't have very many threads to work with, so... If you put one to sleep, you're basically 
go over here and stand in the corner and do nothing. Well, it's like Cartman taking his ball and going home. Yeah. Yeah, my thread, taking it back, going home. <laughs> it's like, okay, it's over, you know? It's great. <laughs> yeah, that'll be in there, I know. <laughs> <laughs> the next thing we're going to talk about is the thread pull. This is not Deadpool because this show is PG. That was my joke. Yeah. A thread pool is a collection of worker threads that execute asynchronous callbacks on behalf of an application. The primary purpose of the pool is to reduce the number of threads required by an application for healthy functioning so that you don't necessarily create one for every request that's coming in. You've just got a set of them that you use and you allocate requests to those threads. Now, that means it can back up behind the pool before one gets allocated. It's sort of like mm-hmm. database connection pooling. This is an expensive, uh, unmanaged resource that you don't want to just dump everything into. Because if you get DDoSed and you're e- allocating a new thread, you'll take the server down Yes, pretty quick. So we talked about threads. Now, there's another thing that's very similar, and that's called a fiber. Now, a fiber is a unit of execution that must be scheduled by the application. It's essentially as if the application had its own threads within mm-hmm. it that only belong to it, and it's the only one that knows about them. The scheduling is controlled by the application and is different from a thread in that it runs in the context of the thread that created it. Right. So it's like a piece of a thread. Yeah. It's like just a chunk of functionality that gets executed. I think this is what's actually happening under the hood in Node Mm -hmm. with async callbacks and stuff is that it's probably kicking off a fiber. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And you you run multiple instances of Node and load balance between them, but when they're processing requests the reason it's so fast is probably because it's allocating fibers instead of threads Mm -hmm. because it's the allocation speed is faster and all that jazz yeah this is really handy for porting applications that expect to control their own thread allocations and scheduling using the metaphor of a shared bank account you might think of this as either myself or will having a business that we run out of the main account as an example of a fiber, like, for example, Bowtie Beach. That's my blog and sort of my own little thing that may be part of the larger organization. And its spending is controlled by the larger organization or complete developer network. But it doesn't exist apart from it. It is like a subsidiary or whatever. It's, it's a piece of that main thing. Right, and and its spending is controlled by you, the worker thread, not me, the other worker thread. Right. And so it spins up in that context. Mm -hmm. So the next topic to discuss is thread local storage. And this is a way to provide unique data for a thread that the owning process can access using a global index. In other words, it's a way of saying, hey, this stuff is local to this thread. Other threads don't get into it, but the process that spins it off can. Yeah. Fibers also have a fiber local storage, which serves a similar purpose at the fiber level. So if you think of in the, the way I think about this is, for example, you have I'm going back to my web development because this is what I do. But you have MVC. Right. All right. And if you think of it in the broad context of the UI is the view, the database is the model and the API is the controller. Well, within the API, you have a model of you and a controller. Within the UI, you have a model of you and a controller. But each of those are just components of the larger yeah. system. 
And so it's, it's a, it's basically the, the larger system on a smaller scale within the larger system. Well, yeah, you can look at it, I guess, that way, because if you think about the fiber, it's a split of the threads resources. The mm-hmm. thread is a split of the process's resources and the process is a split of the OS's resources. Right. That's, that's what I was getting at is it's, it sort of goes, it's like a tree almost. Yeah. Having a separate copy of some data per thread minimizes the areas where race condition can occur. In other words, that thread gets its own copy of stuff, so other threads aren't messing with that while it's executing. So since you've mentioned it, let's go ahead and talk about a race condition or a race hazard, and that is incorrect application behavior that can occur when the output is dependent on the sequence or timing of other uncontrollable events. And this is one of biggest headaches that I found in web development. With like JavaScript callbacks? Right. JavaScript, and then I've run into it a couple of times in C Sharp too. Yep. There are three things that when we have a bug, we look for. One, if first thing is, did someone typo? Two, is it a grants issue on the database? Because that's always a problem. And three, is it a race condition? And four, is it an off by one error? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So there we go. I love that. That was great timing. (laughs) Uh, A good example of this occurs when you make an async call across the network to retrieve some data, but continue processing without waiting on the data to return, making the assumption that if you do enough other work in the interim, that the data will have returned by the time you need it. This can work on a development system, but will eventually bite you in production. You'll have a lot of weird network behavior. Um, yeah, that's what I was talking about. We, we've run into all sorts of problems. And the issue I find, and when I assume it's a race condition, is when I don't get an error in my logs. Something doesn't work right, but there's not an error in the logs. First thing I do is I throw in some breakpoints and go, I bet it's a race condition. And if we, we hit the breakpoints and it works, then usually that's how you know. It's so hard to tell these with debugging that, you know, it's like, oh, well, it works in dev. And it's because we've got all these breakpoints set and it's got a chance to catch up. That's part of the reason a lot of people do logging, you know, and, and use that heavily as their main debugging tool is because, you know, even though it does change things, it changes them consistently. That's true. Instead of how long you sat on a breakpoint, because mm-hmm. a millisecond is a long time for a processor. Very true. This can also occur when two threads are trying to access the same object one for reading from the object and the other for deleting the object, among many other things. The timing of these operations is critical and may not be the same across systems. Because right, you can't guarantee when a thread is going to get interrupted and when it's going to come back. Mm-hmm. So if you have two of them accessing the same thing, it doesn't go real well. Uh, going with the previous metaphor, um, assume two spouses have a bank account because that makes this a little bit easier and a little bit more, a little bit less weird. Let's say that your bank account balance is approaching zero. It's the end of the month, paycheck's a little ways away, whatever. And the couple isn't exactly setting priorities or communicating real well. An overdraft can occur because the balance dropped further between the time when a particular spouse checked it and when they spent money because the other spouse is also spending money. That's essentially a race condition type scenario because one of them, instead of evaluating and going, oh, I don't have enough money, I won't spend they have a cached bad state for the the account. Next, a critical section is a piece of code that accesses a shared resource that cannot be accessed by more than one thread at a time. Yeah, and the equivalent to this in the previous metaphor might be if a couple sets up a system so that only one spouse has their name on the account at a time. 
that spouse is the only one that can access the account then. The other one has to wait their turn. Now, obviously, this is not something you do in real life, although it might work the same way with a wallet. Or if you only have one card. Yeah, well, I'm using that later, <laughs> but I'll explain that here in a minute. Um, this doesn't require communication between threads, so the overhead is lower. So if you use a critical section, you cut out a lot of clock cycles for use, you know, instead of using something like a mutex. And that's why this is here. It can be a problem when a critical section is executed over a long period of time. That can be compared to one spouse going on a week vacation and not switching the account information back over until they return. The other spouse can't buy gas in the interim because they have no access to the account. Now, the next thing is a mutex. And this is really tricky to get in, in combined with the critical section idea because you, you jumped the same direction that I did when I was writing this. And bear in mind, I deal with this stuff all the time. Because you, know, you said, okay, if they have a, a shared card. That card is an artifact that lets them access the thing, which is why it's different than a critical section. It's like you have it or you don't versus it uh, in direction. I see what you're saying. So like it's instead of the critical section is the access to it, the card is just the method of access because there's other methods of access, right. like a checkbook or other things that you could use and than screw a card. Up. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I um, follow. And that's, that's why I went there. Now, a mutex is an object in a concurrent program that serves as a lock and is used to negotiate mutual exclusion between threads. The object upon which the lock is placed can be any number of things. And as we explained before, it might be something like a single debit card on the account issued to the couple. Remember, the couple will take the card when they need it and put it back when they don't. Again, this runs into the same problem of what if one of them takes it for too long? That becomes an issue. Now, a semaphore is a variable used to control access to a common resource by multiple processes. Think of this as the couple's checking account balance. The balance is essentially thread safe, since even if the couple both purchase at the same time, both purchases will go against the account. And this tends more towards uh, increment decrement type behavior instead of set the value. Because again, if your thread says, oh, the account has $100 in it and I'm going to spend 50, it does not necessarily follow that the account's value is going to be $50 afterward because the other thread could have taken out 25 or put 100 in. And so that's where it gets weird. So the reason this works is because a withdrawal is a thread safe decrement of the value in the account, not setting the value to the value it was last time the thread checked it minus the purchase price. The order doesn't matter in that case. Okay. That's, that's the idea. It's the difference between an event stream and CRUD. And that's actually oh, yeah. why, uh, you know, event sourcing type things work better concurrently and distributed is because of this property. So a deadlock, which is the love child of Deadpool and Psylocke. <laughs> Might as well be. It definitely provides enough profanity when you get one. Right. Is a state in which each member of a group is waiting for some other member to take action, usually by releasing a mutex. Back to our couple example. In addition to their bank debit card, a mutex, they also have a Kroger card that they require when going to purchase groceries. This sample is definitely reaching, but imagine what happens when both spouses are going to Kroger to buy different things. They both require both cards, and they each only have one of them, which they are not releasing until after the shopping trip. The shopping trip will never end, which is why Kroger allows you to use your phone number. Right. And they give you two cards when you get them. Well, this is also why couples shouldn't be stupid. 
right. well. Let's, let's, <laughs> just gonna throw that out there. Like, if you actually have this problem, uh, you know, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Now, also note that this deadlock situation can be fixed by lowering the lock granularity or having a wallet that has both cards in it and locking on that. This can, of course, slow throughput if not all the things in the wallet are needed. For instance, your Lowe's credit card might be in the same wallet. If you make your lock granularity too whatever the opposite of granular is, I can't think of the word right now, um, you make it too broad, then you can't get access to resources until some unrelated lock is released. So you don't want that. So you have to kind of play with, you have to play with the granularity of these things a little bit. A live lock, believe it or not, that's something that goes with deadlocks, as bad as that is. A live lock occurs when multiple processes change in regard to one another, but neither moves forward. And this is even dumber than a deadlock. So <laughs> our poor couple that we're discussing here can't be real people because they would never be able to get to the store to have this problem. However, but we're going to use the metaphor anyway, because that's a great way to explain things. Let's say they both have a rule that if they are trying to get the card for an hour and the hour passes, they will let go of the card for the other person to get. Sounds reasonable, right? It's a way to avoid a deadlock. If they don't still have it, you know, they've relinquished the card, and then they try immediately to get the cards they need again. In the other words, the idea is that the other person can... This sounds like something you would see in a video game. Yeah. With proper timing, it would be possible for both spouses to get a single card, wait for the other until it's time to relinquish, relinquish the cards, and switch. Or get the <laughs> same ones again. And so they never move forward. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Right? Because... People, hopefully, generally aren't that stupid, although if you get enough of them, that's debatable. Computer threads, they do what they t what you tell them to. Mm -hmm. So it's your fault as a developer. <laughs> um, and trust me, at some point, you will be this dumb. <laughs> yes, yes. A priority inversion occurs when a lower priority thread holds a resource required by a higher priority thread, which that higher priority thread can't continue its execution. So an example is one spouse has gone to Bass Pro and they're looking at a selection of fishing lines and the other spouse needs the card to pay the mortgage, right? That's a reasonable example. You can turn that around however you feel is appropriate for this metaphor. But the idea being the high priority thing can't happen because the low priority thing happened and took a mutex. And this will burn you, especially with GUIs. Because the GUI could be going, okay, I, I need a mutex for this one you know, little operation that I'm doing. And a slow-moving background thread has that mutex and is never getting switched to because the GUI is going, hey, do I have it? Do I have it? Do I have it? Over and over again. Got to bear in mind, computers are dumb. They, you know, they do what, they, what you tell them. Now, guys, threading is a complex subject, especially at the lower levels. Problems from threading issues can occasionally bubble up and interfere with higher level coding. When we talked about especially race conditions in web development happening a lot, it's also absolutely critical to understand if you need to write high performance code. This episode has been an introduction to the basics of threading. We focused on learning the terms, what they mean, and how they are applied. It, it's a little bit of a shorter episode just because that's been what we focused on. Coming soon, we'll have a more detailed episode about threading, including things like best practices for multi-threaded code. 
But until then, that pretty much wraps us up. Before we close everything out, Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, I just want to point out that algorithms are very useful tools for understanding how your daily life can be made better. It's not just a computing subject. It's great that it is, but you can use it for other things. For instance, we talked about bank accounts as shared resources. This is exactly why my wife and I have separate accounts. I recognized this early on as being a situation where shared stake caused problems and essentially put the accounts in thread local storage. We each have our own accounts. Now, we still communicate about money, and that communication, because these two things are separate, is not pathological. One of us doesn't cause overdrafts to the other. Now, we may have to transfer money and those kind of things, but it's not set up so that one person gets the resource before the other one does, and it's a race. This was especially important in the early stages of when I had a business, and while I'm on this podcast, because it allowed me to spin up and control a separate fiber for managing business expenses, which is already complex enough without adding another party, in other words, another thread to the mix. You can use these things that you learn in computer science class to greatly enhance your daily life and to just get rid of problems. If you look at them algorithmically, a lot of stuff goes away real quick. So that's pretty much all I've got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.